How about now? Yeah, that's better. Um, I had unmuted myself in Zoom to tell you to jump into Discord, so then I had to go back into <laughs> Zoom and mute my audio. Oh, my cool. God. Bunch yeah. of brainiacs. <laughs> Stuff going on. <laughs> I think I think we're good. Uh, got some bots recording in Discord. Uh, we have visual confirmation of two live humans. I have a cold drink. Awesome. It's like some kind of sun tea. It's so hot outside. You just put a jar with some herbs. I've become a hippie, apparently. Yeah, I've I'm, I'm been drinking cold, cold brew, like just gallons of it. Get through the heat. Is it uh, hot where you are? No, no, it's actually been nice. Yeah, so I moved out to the Midwest. Um, and it's oh, wow. got like a nice little spell of uh, just beautiful 70, 80 degrees. So you're not East Coast anymore. Mm -mm. Yeah, in the Midwest. Been Does out here for a year. Central time zone? Mm-hmm. That's right. That mysterious, weird time zone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The flyover territory, which I never realized I would live here. But yeah, it's great. Nice. Yeah. Well, welcome to the podcast, Seth. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the Mac DevOps YVR podcast. This podcast is about the Mac DevOps YVR conference in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. We interview guests and discuss topics around managing Macs using open source software products inspired by DevOps. Our goal is to encourage developers and IT to work together to solve problems for our community. For more information, see our website, mdoyvr.com. This is the Mac DevOps podcast. So yeah, the the big thing that I wanted to present to you was a big recipe for an actual remote distributed workflow for video editing. You got my attention. So like I got interested in this um even pre-pandemic where I started to run into some limits with the Google Drive file stream um, and sort of like any of those clients where you're just kind of syncing files and downloading across different things. And I remember this was actually February of 2020. I was like, we have to stop using Google Drive to to send files around because there's a 750 gigabyte uh, per day limit or per user per day limit. And so back then I was like, okay, we can just start sort of uploading stuff to S3 and then downloading it on the other end. But that's still just kind of syncing media. Um, and I had heard about Lucidlink uh, right when the pandemic struck because people were kind of scrambling for everything, extending via VPN. Uh, remote desktop solutions to sort of extend workstations that might be connected to on-premises infrastructure. Uh, but it didn't make sense at the time. We were too small. Everything was up in the air, and we didn't really know what to do. Uh, but then finally, about a year later, there was a particular video that the Adobe team did. Dave Helmley, 
and Jason Levine are two Adobe guys on the um, on the Adobe video team. And they sort of walk through this hour class about using Lucidlink. And the pitch was really good. I mean, they weren't promoting Lucidlink necessarily. They were just impressed by the product and how well it worked. And they were sort of doing it under um, very specific conditions where they were sort of sending around um, they were sending around H.264 or HEVC files, and they both had gigabit links to internet. And so it looked really impressive, and I just started playing with it, and it was like sort of good enough. But it didn't really fulfill the promise of truly distributed editing for a bunch of different reasons. Um, the well, thing that I was... Let's back up oh, one second, Seth. Yeah. It's like, what problem are we trying to solve? Like, yeah. what, what industry are we in? Like, we're both kind of like, you know, like I'm, you know, organizer of Mac DevOps, you know, does developers and there's IT and we probably both do IT stuff, but some of our clients, customers, our industry base seems to be video, right? So what problem are you trying to solve? Like, you know, how have you done this before? And then you're, you know, um, maybe set us up here how this all came together. Yeah, so we're we're in media and entertainment uh, just generally. And so we're doing a lot of short-form documentary work uh, for Freethink, which you can get at freethink.com. And so um, really up until 2020, the primary way that we were shipping video files around was just on hard drives. We'd load up a few hundred gigs here and there and just overnight drives all over the place because we had editors that were distributed. Some editors would be able to work off of a local 10 gig uh, or a local high performance NAS device. Uh, but um, yeah, a lot of editors just um, needed the proxies of footage that we were making and sort of a traditional filmic workflow where we'd sort of create proxies, give them the footage, and then we'd be able to take a Premiere Pro project file back, um, collect it onto our on-premises server, do the conform for sound and color, and sort of package it uh, to take it across the finish line. Uh, reconnect it to the original raw or original size, you know, of some quality ProRes or other. And uh, yeah, like you said, conform, which is a funny word for some people. And then, you know, color correct, make it all good, get it ready to go, export exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And th this is typically the a lot of those metaphors in the traditional film workflow uh, come from the old analog days where you wouldn't want to touch the pristine camera masters and you would have your work print. And then finally, when you made the editing decisions, you would only go back to the, the first copy that was shot right out of the camera and um, make the derivative prints from there. But this is all digital now. Uh, everything, I mean, since... Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou, way back when, was the first film that did the full DI on the entire piece, and they were out doing digital cool. distribution. Or, digital well, they printed the film, but yeah. 
Yeah, we're getting all nerdy on the video side. So we got this workflow where there's a creatives and they're working in video and they've been shipping drives around. And then you're slowly poking at different ways of getting files around and then realizing that Google Drive, which is pretty cool, um, had a limit and you ran into this limit somehow because you're like, well, we shot a lot of footage and you've got to upload it, but then why is it not uploading? And then you're like, 750 gigs is the limit? <laughs> Which is something. So, yeah, lo lots of our projects would be north of a terabyte. And so it was not reliable just to be able to tell someone, hey, you've got a decent connection. You could just download a terabyte of footage or whatnot. I, we were just hitting their tripwires. And so the thing that, because uh, media and entertainment is so stuck on large video files. Um, there's just no way to collaborate as smoothly as if it was merely a Google Doc. That kind of collaboration is still impossible because you have to figure out how to send the media files across geography in a reliable and consistent way. A Google Doc is a tiny amount of data compared to media files that are can be hundreds of gigs large. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a couple of different puzzle pieces here is like we have the original footage, you know, you know, when they're shooting in 4K or six or eight or God forbid, bigger than that, you know, <laughs> um, you know, working with a proxy format of some kind helps uh, that workflow, um, you know, even locally, if you're a local network, you're not sitting on a big fat XN or fiber channel, you know, you got 10 gig, but if you're working off drives, so proxies, smaller versions which can still be, you know, high resolution, but just, you know, in H.264 in a different format, so you have smaller files. Then there's the other puzzle piece where if you do have people working on the same project, around the same time, like, well, before the pandemic, I found, uh, like, PostLab, because they were, I'd known the, the guy, Jasper, um, who, who started the PostLab project, and I was really interested the way he was like, oh, well, you could just trade your Final Cut project back and forth because it's really just, you know, a bunch of text files, a small database, and... Uh, you know, and that that was interesting to me, but I could never get editors to switch before the pandemic because they're like, what? Change our workflow? Change the way we do things? <laughs> um, when the pandemic happened, it definitely, uh, I was like, this is the only way we got to do it because I checked out, we're, we're going to use like, you know, Lucid and PostLab and Lucid definitely has an interesting, uh, interesting file system with the streaming file system. So that seems to make it different from Dropbox or Google or any other file platform. Um, so you've been, you were really into Lucid and you thought that would be a way around the Google Drive system, right? The Lucid link. Yeah, originally, I mean, like I said, we were still, we were still uh, shipping, just uploading and downloading from S3, which was simple enough, but it was not really fulfilling the promise of what they were after. The um, Post Lab is great because they, uh, they're essentially including a white label version of LucidLink. And I think they are pretty tightly integrated. But the LucidLink product can also be bought and used separately from PostLab itself. Um, and uh, the tech that they have that, the, yeah, they've got some just really interesting tech behind it. And it can show up just like a, you know, a simple drive, you know, file share. And so it, it fulfills a simple workflow bucket need, or I need to put stuff. Okay. This looks like a bucket. 
So you can quickly train people and go, this is where your proxies are. We're going to load them up. And, um, and then you can attach it to any other workflow you want, whether, and you've been doing a bunch of different workflows because part of some of what you were doing, you were telling us before about, you know, using like uh, Amazon services for, uh, you know, uh, booting up Resolve and running through and making proxies and doing trying to automate everything in Amazon. And how how did that project go? I mean, that was part of this whole puzzle as well, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, when we last spoke about that, a lot of that was trying to figure out if it made sense if we were going to be shipping camera originals through S three then it would make sense to spin up an EC2 instance and install Resolve to it or, or have an AMI or something where it was already installed. Call that data up into a f attached file system like FSX for Luster and then just churn through to make proxies in that EC2 instance itself. But it turns out that's... Uh, that's a pretty specific use case, and <laughs> it's not always relevant. But uh, we were always still interested in figuring out how do we get media to offline editors in a streamlined way. And that's where we started messing around with LucidLink. And what we found is that the, the tech is interesting, but it's missing there seems to be missing uh institutional knowledge of very particular video workflows for premiere pro and davinci resolve and that's the thing that we have sort of figured out in the meantime it it's took us maybe six months of playing around with it but it's a lot of different uh moving parts yeah i mean it's got to make sense with the workflow like i you know I don't know if my it's my mantra or my slogan, but I mean, you can help the people that want to be helped, but you can also slowly give ideas to people that are ready for the next idea, right? So when people are ready for the next thing, so I know with my camera capture workflow sort of helping service, like when I help people, you know, I've, I try to help, like if they shoot it and whoever, who's going to be in charge of like backing that up or copying it, copying it off the cards and, you know, securing it. You know, and so I've managed to, you know, with some clients work that into the whole whole workflow. Okay, hey, you know, like using Hedge or whatever app you want to, you get the camera cards, you can make multiple copies either off site if you're on some kind of location or back in some kind of office or something, make multiple copies. And then with Hedge, for example, you can automate a bunch of different things. So like you can use full cat, make camera reports, you can make metadata, you can do a bunch of things. And that's what I'm at. I'm trying to almost like audio sweetening. I found an old, some kind of beta cam or some kind of cassette where it said sweetened on the tape. Like the, 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 the audio was like, yeah. Uh, uh, but you know, basically when you're capturing your, your data, you want to make sure it's safe and you want to make sure, and it would be nice to have like a camera capture workflow that secures the footage, makes the proxies, add some metadata, like your camera reports, like which location, who shot it, you know, and add that information, that metadata so that it can add. So in the end, like for me, with my editors that are using Final Cut, I want to show, I want that all that metadata to show up as keywords, maybe already in, in the, you know, Final Cut when they open it or something. And, and to that end, I, I know a long time ago, I was talking about um, using uh, Foxtrot Pro for searching stuff. And I was also looking at uh, NeoFinder but I've gotten more into NeoFinder because the developer is very excited about helping. And I just gave him some Final Cut XML 
where I was showing him the keywords that you can make in Final Cut over, over time-based ranges, as well as just keywords over the whole clip. And so then he was getting that, searching for that uh, metadata in the XML so that it would search show up in a search for footage. So, um, so I, I was imagining a whole kind of round trip. You're capturing the footage, you're adding metadata to it. The metadata gets tagged to the footage. When the footage goes in the final cut, it shows up as t keywords. And then when it goes out, it's already, all the footage is already tagged. And then when you're searching for it with like say NeoFinder or whatever, then it's already tagged, has the keywords that the editor used or maybe from on set. And so all this like metadata, <laughs> you know, imagining this perfect loop because like, you know, you shoot some footage. Maybe you want to find it again. You're doing a documentary. Maybe you're shooting some B-roll or, or you're, you got trains and you're shooting a lot of trains. And then later you go, I need a train. And then all this footage can come back if you can find it. <laughs> you <know>? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the, the human part of entering that metadata is kind of like taking your vitamins. You don't have some immediate payoff, but you vaguely know that it's sort of good for you. Um, you know, in some, some undefined way, it'll help you in the future. Yeah. I mean, that's why I think, um, some, I mean, I know hedge has added some stuff where you can add metadata while you're capturing it. So, I mean, I remember when I used to work in visual effects, we'd get these camera reports and you're trying to do, well, I wasn't doing it. I was standing behind the 3d artist and they were trying to do it, but you know, I got to see what they're complaining about and they'd complain about getting camera reports from set where they didn't know the focal length. They didn't know the camera that like the, the, the reports were filled out by hand barely. Right. So it, right. <laughs> when you have to do things manually, sometimes, uh, it just, uh, maybe doesn't get done really well. Uh, but yeah, how do you do that so that it adds to the system so that all the footage that you've captured and used for a project is, you know, saved for the future and you can be reused, um, I think it was Intelligent Assistant created an app called FinderCat, where if you made keywords in Final Cut, you could drag out your events and then it would make those into Finder tags. So in Mac OS, all your Final Cut keywords would be actually be tagged to your footage or your clips so that they became searchable with Spotlight, which is kind of neat. So if a f some kind of editor decides that ice cream is the keyword that's important for this clip, then it now gets now tags all the footage, which is kind of really interesting because having worked with metadata asset management systems, you know, it, it, if people don't put in the right metadata, then you'll never find it. Nobody wants to put in metadata. <laughs> so, you know, how do we do this organically as the process goes? And while the, so it makes sense for the editors, right? So have you, have you had to tackle any of these kind of issues, like when your workflow, like from capture to finding, storing, securing footage? And so we, we've just sort of institutionalized um, pretty tight folder structures uh, in which we have the manual process of actually inspecting exactly, uh, and actually I should say organizing camera cards and making sure that the role names have no collisions, that sort of each camera gets a letter um, and then it sort of incrementally counts up so that there aren't collisions for the odd cameras that have like, uh, that just count from zero, 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 one, zero, two, and have bad would be uh. collisions that we can just, uh, know that well that clip two was on B one and this other clip yeah, <laughs> uh, right two was on C three. So at a most recorder or something, it was just like, it wasn't, doing uh, unique file names of just renaming things. And then you're like, uh, there's multiple clips that are all named the same. Like, 
But this, um, I mean, this presented an opportunity because we already had the muscle memory and knew that we already were very deliberate about keeping folder structures intact and um, having proxies and sort of with the camera originals organized just so, we could build out a proxy folder structure that matched exactly so that when it came time to conform back for color grading, that uh, it was just like very easy to relink to that stuff. Using folder structures metadata makes perfect sense. I mean, how many times I set up an asset management system, people are like, no, I just want to use the finder. I just want to put things in folders that I understand. And so if you can combine a bit of both, where like I think in Final Cut, if you actually drag and drop or import, you can actually say, use the folder structure as metadata as keywords. And I mean, if people put them in folders for a reason, right? Maybe it's the name of the camera. Maybe it's the name of the shoot. Maybe it's the name of a location. Maybe it's something else important. Why enter that into a form if it's already there somewhere? Um, you know. Uh, yeah, some of it is absolutely helpful. And uh, one of the tools that we use to just always standardize around this is uh, Post Haste from Digital Rebellion. And they're great. They have some interesting... Um, ways of entering particular pieces of metadata and then having that get incorporated into folder names or file names too. So you can have a template or you can actually come up with special keywords that always consistently get spit out into the folder structure, uh, different folders, subfolders, and file names. And so that's a really good way of keeping this consistent. We kind of tweak the folder structure over time so that like at any point, maybe six months ago, we if we needed to call up a project, we can say, oh, that was before we did this or that, or you know, that folder, we used to do it, we used to have it there and it moved, but it's still recognizable and, and still intuitive, even if it's uh, constantly being tweaked and improved. Definitely run into that like sort of ghost template that sort of goes on and on and on and mutates and Sometimes I'm looking to see if there's actual files in here and I'm like, empty folder, empty folder, empty folder. No, nobody's using that part of the template anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Things evolve, things change. Yeah. Um, And so the pandemic hit and you already heard about Lucid. And so you jumped on Lucid and has Lucid really helped the delivery of proxies and you're working with proxies. People are working off of Lucid. So th- this is this is kind of like where we put our heads down for uh, probably I should say more than six months uh, because the demo fr- the demo from the Adobe guys were was great but they were using pretty low data rate H.264s and a- with gig links but um, we sort of just institutionally knew that it's better for Premiere Pro at least, to have editing proxy formats. And if you really want to dive deep into why use particular formats <laughs> in, different, uh, in different instances throughout a post-production workflow, you could check out David Kong's big article on the Frame.io website. Frame.io had a bunch of great workflow guides, uh, still do. And uh, this was one of the earliest pieces of content when they took this on and wanted to be this kind of industry leader. And so uh, 
there's a lot of reasons for using uh, very particular formats, namely in this case, uh, ProRes Proxy 422 or the Avid equivalent, which is DNxHRLB or uh, they used to call the 1080p ones DNxHD. Um, uh, DNxHD, uh, I'm forgetting the name, but the 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 independent resolution DNxHR one uh, could be uh, any frame size, uh, and it's called LB for low bandwidth. Okay, I hadn't heard of that one. That's... So they um, those editing formats use intraframe compression, and what that means is you can kind of scrub through on Premiere Pro. And you get entire distinct frames kind of get called up so that the frames can actually get served through through the software more quickly. Whereas when you have inter-frame compression from something like H.264 or HEVC, you'll sort of see these like second or like half second delays and even calling up the frames. For video editors, this is a big deal. It, it can get stuttery. And it's also just more taxing on the CPU. Um, it, it's, it can be for Premiere Pro, but also just any editing system. Uh, you're sort of wasting CPU cycles, merely decoding from that format if you just stick with H.264. Um, so, I mean, this goes way back... This goes way back to um, systems where the bandwidth, it was even more important to conserve bandwidth, mm -hmm. but it still, it still applies. You don't want to be wasteful of the CPU cycles, um, merely just calling up the video frames inside the editor. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely had a debate when we were looking at the beginnings of this. We're like, okay, do we go now? Uh, and Final Cut finally came back to like Final Cut 10, now Final Cut Pro, you know, no 10. <laughs> Final Cut X, <laughs> you know, it it sort of had everything and then it, they cut everything out and started again. But yeah, they finally got to the point where a lot of the features are back and then they just reintroduced like a whole really nice pro, pro like a proxy workflow just in time for a pandemic. Um, so we, we definitely were like, okay, ProRes proxy or H.264 because we cannot do either. And we ended up choosing H.264 after testing and, you know, ProRes proxy just seemed like the natural one, but it was a lot bigger than H.264. So, um, but it depends on like how it does perform. Like if you find that H.264 is stuttery, then that's just going to be no fun for editing. But so far we've been having good success with H.264, but uh, yeah, either one I think is a good choice. I mean, depends on your editing, your editor, your NLE. Uh, so, for, so yeah, exactly. So for us, we we always standardized. We knew about these advantages of the intra-frame codecs, like ProRes Proxy or DNxHRLB. And we knew that that could make it a lot more scrubbable, um, and we wouldn't be wasting those CPU cycles. But the data rates for those formats are totally stuck or they're, uh, they're completely dependent on whatever resolution we choose for the editing proxies. And uh, the only way around that is really choosing lower resolution files. So if you had native resolution H.264s or HEVC, you could just crank the data rate down to whatever you wanted to be less than the bandwidth of your particular internet endpoint. But it's not so with 
uh, ProRes Proxy or DNX HR. So um, the thing that I was always after was figuring out how do we standardize around smaller frame sizes in the proxies, but then reliably conform back to the original sizes uh, when it's time to conform for the DI and go off to color grading. And that's what I was always stuck on. So the thing that I put my head down and just tried to figure out, including reaching out to the Adobe folks, was uh, what I soon found out was the same workflow that David Fincher's team uses. And I figured, it's good enough for David Fincher. It's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a tip from Carl Soule, who's also on the Adobe video team, um, on Twitter. And he mentioned that if you're very diligent with the proxies, let's say you have a UHD clip, just 3840 by 2160, and you can just quarter it. So if you go half in two dimensions, and you go back to 1920 by 1080, and you can shrink the working timeline down proportionally. So we just started saying, okay, we're going to do this quarter res workflow. We, we coined this term. Uh, I think Carl Soleil called it just half. We, but really it's quarter because it's one half in two dimensions. It's half height and half width. So we might have a mix in our documentary shoots of different frame sizes. Some of them might be DCI 4K, which is 4096 uh, by 2160. Or some might be the broadcast UHD 3840 by 2160. And so given that we were already having, we already had this very tightly organized folder structure, we could just keep track of exactly the dimensions to make sure that all the heights on every clip and all the widths were exactly half which meant all the footage was essentially quarter the resolution. And because of those intra-frame codecs, quarter the data rates. Yeah. So if you just do the math, um, take a UHD clip that's at pretty typical footage frame rate, 23,976, at least for North America. If you uh, have a UHD ProRes proxy clip, that data rate will be about 144 megabits per second. And that can be still pretty stuttery. So there's a lot of internet endpoints. I mean, people do have pretty fast uh, bandwidth. They've got uh, a lot of bandwidth throughout. But 144 is kind of iffy if you're trying to constantly stream that. And so when we shrink it down to 1080p, a quarter the data rate now we're looking at 36 36 megabits per second and a lot of people have a lot more bandwidth to their internet endpoints than 36 megabits per second and that's the key threshold that we were trying to cross so that we could have all these proxies be at a much lower resolution much lower data rate it's faster to render the proxies, it's faster to upload them, and then because it's in this LucidLink file space, we're actually able to stream out directly from it. This is starting to get into magic territory 
And that's, that's like the key, um, that's some of the key ingredients to this whole recipe, which is that, um, the lucid link technology, it's not magic, but it can feel like magic when it's working really well. And that's because you're, when you upload into a lucid link file space, you're, it's actually, it's actually incredible. It's zero knowledge. So they're breaking up video files um, into little chunks of encrypted gibberish that o- that only you control. And so they're breaking it up into small enough chunks that when you go to stream out of the LucidLink file space, you're actually downloading on demand a few video frames at a time. And so when you crunch the numbers, if you're endpoints internet bandwidth is high enough and the data rate of the video codec that you're trying to download is low enough it's magic you're just you're you're not waiting to download entire files you're just streaming straight out of it i mean the first time when i was doing my uh uh, Crow Magnon version of uh, asset management where I'm finding stuff on storage and hucking it on the Lucid for the editors. And literally the first time I drop a huge like B-roll file onto Lucid and it's not even finished uploading and he's already like looking at it frame by frame and he's like, yeah, that's the one or no. I'm like, I mean, it's an ugly process. Like I'm, I feel like I'm clawing through my hands through footage, throwing it on loose. And he's like, mm, yep, nope, nope, not that one. And I'm like, there's got to be a better way than this. <laughs> but, you know, just like this is huge, like hundreds and hundreds of gigs. And it's like not even uploaded. And he's already like being able to preview at least a bit of the file. Like just so that that feels like magic. And um, I mean, Lucid does a bunch of cool things and then including the cache. So, I mean having a local cache means you can work locally quote unquote while you're actually streaming and working off of a shared file space you know online i mean and some of the magic that i've done because i'm a huge magician in the you know video world but the the magic is hey can we all work together on the same shared storage i mean that's my magic trick right i just walk into any room and go hey have you heard about shared storage um so so, you know with with you know with with file naming and proper workflow and shared storage you can get a lot done but now with the pandemic even more um you have this how do we do this shared workflow with standards and accepted ways of file naming and you know keeping you know our our stuff organized well how do we do that when we're remote right so lucid gives us this chance of having a shared storage but you can work locally and and you can stream it um so i think i don't know are you the same kind of magician you know yeah yeah this it's funny a lot this is the other thing that i think uh, is not quite well understood when deploying lucid and it's one of the mistakes that people make is considering that cache folder um initially when we started to play with it we just figured hey this cache folder we understand that this is where the chunks of video data are getting downloaded to so we can just put it on any storage we want um and that was actually a big mistake and a big learning experience because it turns out it's doing a lot more than just downloading and uploading and reading and writing uh, to the local workstation. It's doing all sorts of like extra encryption and decryption, um, data validation and whatnot. So 
it actually requires being on a much faster uh, disk, like an SSD, basically an SSD or table stakes to get it done. Initially, I put it onto what I thought was fast enough local shared storage, and it actually made the whole Lucid Link client crash, <laughs> like, um, yeah. uh, like hilariously crash. It's um, been a learning experience as well. And basically, uh, you said, yeah, it's like uh, external, like attached, fast SSD storage for your local cache. And uh, yeah, <laughs> We've exactly. Yeah, but even like a even like a pretty fast RAID five with say four spinning uh, hard drive disks was not enough. Something where you could say, hey, I you know I can do. 200 megabytes per second still wasn't fast enough it would get choppy because there's all sorts of extra encryption decryption all all this other gibberish going on that that is not uh you don't think of when you're thinking i just need to be able to read and write media files when we first started using lucid pretty heavily i got some panicked calls from corporate security who were saying that you know drives were getting encrypted faster than they could you know follow that and i'm like oh it's just lucid we're encrypting our own files you know (laughs) you know you have to check you have to be aware but yeah (laughs) so yeah to that end i mean sometimes if i mean nowadays modern computers uh that the assorted editors have their boot drives or ssds and they might have enough space but the thing about the cache drive is that the media is getting downloaded to that. So these chunks of video frames, and this is actually all in a hidden folder that you would never want to, you as a human would never want to go into and mess with. Uh, it just shows through MacFuse as this like uh, fake local storage that's a mounted volume that uh, it, it feels like magic because there's no drive there, but it feels like it would be local. But the thing that you want to do with that cache drive is make it as big. If it's on an, you have to make sure it's on an SSD, and then um, make it as big as possible. I think up to ten terabytes you can do. This has big implications for when you actually are downloading from the block storage from the cloud provider because. Uh, you can roll your own, um, and they also have deals. Uh, the LucidLink team itself has kind of a special relationship with IBM, where they provide uh, like a prepackaged white label, um, white label block storage for IBM's cloud. But uh, there used to be egress fees. I think they have new plans that don't have any. Um, but if you take your own cloud you can definitely incur egress fees merely for downloading from that block storage. And so it's important to make that cache large because uh, it will collect the most recently downloaded bits of video data. And what's nice about that is if you keep it large, the first time you touch the video frame, it'll download. And then when you go back to call that up in your NLE, it won't download again. So you won't incur that extra egress charge for the frame downloading again and until it gets full and you have to start sort of purging whatever the yeah. least recently used bits of video data are. And, you know, it's kind of a big love in for LucidLink because they're awesome. But yeah, they have an extra feature where you can pin stuff. So instead of waiting for it to be touched, you can just say, I want this folder always on my local storage as well. So, you know, cloud shared storage but working locally in a distributed sort of work environment it's a great uh 
uh, a great uh, compromise <laughs> yeah. um, and working in a proxy format. Um, I know you were struggling with audio files. Uh, Premiere was making your life even more interesting. You were, uh, yeah, that? that's the one that's, that was another one of the challenges that we worked out, which was what do we do with the visual waveforms that Premiere was generating automatically? And there's some, there's some guidance from the Lucid Lake team about this, but it kind of is a funky legacy holdover from how Premiere is architected. So if you had a completely fresh installation of Premiere Pro and you didn't touch any of the settings, then when you first pull media into it, it actually just starts to traverse and read through every single video clip and audio clip so that it can generate visual waveforms. And those live as these kind of sidecar files that aren't quite as accessible as the normal media, the video clips that you might relink to if you were opening um, from a different drive on a different system. Instead, they, they kind of live in the user-specific boot disks. And so <laughs> you kind of have to give it up. Um, you can go into Premiere settings and uncheck one checkbox to make sure that Premiere doesn't traverse through all the media that gets dropped into the project panel. And instead, you can just... Uh, because if it does, and you're trying this on LucidLink, it'll be trying to stream everything as quickly as, an, as it can, and it'll be competing with the data that you're trying to pull just by looking at the video clips and scrubbing through. So sometimes though, editors still, they like having, uh, especially if it's like some long interview clip, they like having those visual waveforms just so they can sort of get a sense for where particular subjects were talking or if there was like a quiet spot. And so what you can do is just selectively generate it for the clip you're about to work on, and you won't be fighting yourself as you're trying to stream the data out of LucidLink. I'm glad you figured that out. With Final Cut, we haven't had that problem. It just doesn't generate waveforms when you want it to sometimes, so all the time. So it didn't matter where. <laughs> I know when I was <laughs> uh, editing some of the uh, Mac DevOps uh, videos, it was like trying to like convince myself I'm competent enough in Final Cut, and I was going through it, and I'm like, where are my waveforms? I need to see what people are are saying and when they're coughing and when they're pausing. And, you know, I found it kind of frustrating. It, it does show waveforms sometimes, but then they just all disappear. And then you have to zoom back in. When you zoom in, then it goes, oh, yeah, you want waveforms, no problem. I'm like, ugh. But, yeah, know. it's it's one of those things where, like, because I had this in mind and I knew that I was trying to really revolutionize the workflow in a way that, editors would no longer have to wait for downloading. This was one of these things where I was frustrated about this because I figured, hey, let's just make the editors deal with this. Like, Don't they know that this is so important that uh, they can deal without waveforms and, and just uh, get on with it? And you can't really approach it that way. You have to just give your different collaborators what they are saying they need for their creative process. So you can't just wave it. You can't hand wave it away and say like, you don't actually need waveforms because 
you do. <laughs> it, it, it's super important. And so it was one of these things where we knew we had to consider it. So what is your end-to-end workflow then? Um, like for, for us, uh, for a lot of my clients, I'm basically getting like usually people who shoot to do the capturing and then like make the, and also it just happens to work out with PostLab. Like if you create a project and then you bring the project and the footage in, you just make the proxies automatically in Final Cut. And then the proxies go on, on, on PostLab Drive, which is LucidLink, which is definitely at one way. Um, I've had other clients who are now using the Terra deck and making their proxies automatically, setting them to frame IO. And, you know, <laughs> so that's another way. But um, are you having the people that shoot the footage make the proxies? Uh, you've given up your cloud EC2 automation with Resolve. So what's your, uh, what's your uh, proxy and uh, creation workflow here? So we've tried a lot of different things here. Um, and uh, we like having this culture where people are nitpicky and kind of like uh what we say um to all sorts of different folks on the team is not just that it's okay to say that something isn't working or bring forth a suggestion but we actually think it's an obligation if you're seeing that something isn't working well or that there's some way of doing it better you're obligated to bring to come forward and say like hey Let's. This isn't good. Let's make it better some other way and constantly tweak and improve. So we've gone through a lot of different methods of creating proxies reliably, and we've settled on DaVinci Resolve, not necessarily because it's the best tool. Um, it's just that we sort of figured it out and put our heads down to make it work for us. One of the nice things is when we have people out in the field producing uh we are very uh insistent that they jam sync external audio to uh external audio to the video cameras so that means that if you actually have the clock that's accurate down to the frame then you can pull in audio files and video files in davinci resolve and sync in seconds uh you just click the audio that should be associated with the same video and there's no issues. It gets associated at the clip level. That kind of functionality is, uh, it, it might be in some other high-end dailies tools, but uh, we never we never were satisfied with doing it in Premiere directly itself. Hmm. And, and you mix the proxies because you want the, the audio track that you want from the audio recording source that you want. Right. <laughs> so it's, so it's one of those things where the audio can sync in seconds. Um, and then because, because resolve has that legacy as a, a high end color corrector, we also, if we're shooting to uh, log footage or raw footage where we have to choose how to debayer it, we, um, choose the right color spaces, um, assuming that the cinematographers white balanced correctly and exposed correctly, just kind of all snaps right into place and we can spit those proxies out. Um, but the equivalent, what we thought we might be able to do is associate those proxies we generated in Resolve with the with the OCNs we might drag into a Premiere Pro project. And the Adobe documentation is a little spotty here 
they claim that you can associate proxies from other software or even just external recorders like from Atomos or something, but it just in practice doesn't really work. So in theory, what the conform might have looked like was we make these proxies in Resolve, drag in the original camera negatives into Premiere, and then kind of associate those proxies clip by clip so that once we're ready to conform to the camera originals, we could just hit the button inside the Premiere timeline and flip it all back so that it's ready for color. But in practice, it's really spotty and the links to the proxies just don't stick. And so we end up actually only importing the proxies into Premiere at all. Uh, This is also why Carl Soule pointed me to that David Fincher workflow and said, this is how he does it. We know that the proxy tools aren't quite the same. Uh, I think uh, Final Cut 10 and Avid are just better about this, but Premiere is sort of lagging behind. And this is yeah, this is the man. way that we've made up for it. This is an opportunity for me to say you guys have to switch to Final Cut. Come on. <laughs> I mean, we we tested initially, like I love people that make cool tools and cool apps and cool workflows. I mean, we're both nerds and we want to try things and see what works and what doesn't. So I mean, I met uh Robert and uh some other people from Kino um at NAB and I was like, oh you guys have created a really cool tool that you know you can import and make metadata, make proxies. And so initially I was like, hey, maybe we can, especially since some people were shooting with Canons and shooting MXFs and I was just like, I don't want to edit in that. Some people want to edit in that. Um, you know, so I was like, hey, maybe we can make ProRes, uh, you know, transcode it or, or not transcode it, rewrap it and then like make proxies. And so I was like, hey, maybe we can use Kino. And then I was kind of initially worried at first, can we like reconnect them? And Final Cut didn't really have their proxy workflow quite dialed in. And then it ended up that Final Cut developed a, a, its own proper proxy workflow. And it just seemed simpler in terms of what, what we were asking the people that were capturing was like, okay, once you've captured it, just import it into Final Cut make make the proxies just immediately and then it just it just happened to work in that workflow i mean everybody has different workflows for how to set up a project and how to hand it off and um that just happened to 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 drive when we explained it to the people we're like okay this could be the workflow step one two three and they're like okay we can do that that's you know without too much thought you know so that meant we didn't use any external apps like and i know other people have been using resolve and they love using it for proxies but yeah if you have to reattach every clip you know that could be a pain you know, even in Final Cut, if it loses its mind somewhere and you're reconnecting and it just doesn't know where anything is, like people have had their own pocket drives or external drives. And then they're, you know, I was working on these proxies and now I'm working on this and I'm trying to refine all the originals. And, you know, that can be a nightmare. So, um, well, so, uh, yeah, we, uh, we never actually end up bringing, uh, we don't actually have to use the premiere, the native premiere tool that keeps the, camera originals attached to those proxies instead um we we supplemented this with another plugin to be able to reliably bring everything back up um so what we found is so it's a checkbox in premiere this is what carl sule uh, alerted us to was that you can scale the timeline back up but if you offline all the proxies you'll just be able to like relink to the camera originals. And uh, it's one checkbox when you're resizing the sequence. 
that will just work. And the math for all those proxies you have tight control over is nice because all the keyframes or motion parameters that all just translate because it, just like when we were deciding to shrink it down to quarter resolution, when we're bringing it back up, the proxies are relinking from quarter back to native res and the timeline, say it was a 1920 by 1080 final deliverable, it would have been a 960 by 540 editing sequence. So the proxies get relinked to their camera originals that are four times the size and the sequence that quarter res four times the size goes back up to what the final delivery is. I mean, it all snaps really into place, but there is, there is one gap with this, which is the uh, other assets that might be like low res stock comps that don't really follow the recipe. They weren't quarter res. We didn't have control over the creation or really any of those assets that might just not be following the same rule. And for that, we found this plugin called Excalibur from this interesting company, Knights of the Editing Table. Um, they go really into the theme <laughs> of the Knights of the Round Table. Uh, if you check out their website, it's like all pretty funny and awesome promotional material. But they do something pretty fascinating, which is uh, just being able to have a lot. It's like a big Swiss army knife for Premiere Pro. A lot of the missing functionality that you might not have even realized you wanted. And one of the things that they're, I guess it's their lead developer. He goes by Sir Ivan. <laughs> Sir, because it's the Knights of the Editing Table. They, uh, he wrote a script, um, a custom script to be able to plug in because you can sort of select clips or if you keep selection follows playhead, um, you, you can just um, quickly have a shortcut to run a script on a particular clip. And in our case, what we needed was we want to be able to specify a factor to change the scaling. So for a bunch of clips that might just need to be blown back up or, or even uh, shrunk back down because it wasn't quite right. This script that we can execute, if we sort of like collect all the clips onto one track where we know it needs to be multiplied larger, or smaller by a very specific factor, it will, if, the, if there are no keyframes on the clip, it will just snap it to that factor, all of them. But if there are keyframes, it will actually go keyframe by keyframe and adjust them all by the factor. Um, even the crazy out of bound ones that are outside the in and out points in the sequence. So editors can sometimes get crazy and sort of lose track of that, but it still affects it when you start messing around. Before, you just have people mashing through and trying to match it frame by frame because it wouldn't quite match. And in this case, all the work is just eliminated. So this is helpful and sort of keeps this glued together for all those like other edge cases. But um, it's, it's less work overall. And we have the whole advantage of being able to have the editors not have to download anything at all uh, overall, which is like a huge, huge time saving. 
I'm trying to imagine how your editors do all this. They sound like they're math elites, you know, they're calculating like frame sizes and doing like multipliers and then they're opening terminal and running scripts. And it sounds uh, very, uh, very intense. So the, so we, we sort of isolate the technical and creative work so that the editors, the rule for the editors is really just that keep their, they need to keep their, editing timelines at exactly a quarter res of the delivery timeline and just kind of take the quarter res footage and work from there. And if it looks right, then the assistant editors can run these plugins and just have the institutional knowledge to be able to bring it back up. Um, Mm -hmm. So they're not, they're not sort of getting bogged down in the math of this. It's like uh, Excalibur's siloed with the assistant editors in a great way. I mean, uh, one of the coolest features, and I'm embarrassed to say it's like so, so, so insignificant, but one of the coolest features they added in Final Cut was when they added the, in the proxy workflow, they added proxy preferred workflow. And so basically before it used to be full res or proxy, and then anything that wasn't proxyable music or graphics or something would just be ignored. And so you had to always be in full res. And so they made proxy preferred, which meant that you could have all proxy footage or anything that was proxyable could be proxied. And then anything that wasn't, it's just which is what you kind of want in this new proxy world where you want what can be proxied and smaller. But uh, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think any of our um, final cut editors have to do any crazy math, uh, but we just throw everything on the timeline. There's no tracks in final cut, but yeah, I just want everything on the timeline. I mean, you, you set your timeline to what's useful and um, it obviously takes the first clip and we do usually 50% H.264. So it just takes like the 4k and, you know, brings it down a little bit. Um, you know, tried like even smaller and even bigger and, you know, but you got to determine like how much storage space do you need for your proxies? How much storage space, you know, whenever people would ask me about storage space in the past, I'd be like, okay, you can only use about 80% of that. And then whatever you have, you have to back up. So (laughs) how are you, how are you doing this? If you have remote editors, remote capture, you're using proxies in the cloud, but are you, is everyone still shipping drives back to some central place that gets put onto LTO? I mean, I still love LTO, but um, Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I've, I've always been interested in Final Cut, uh, like even going back as far as when it first launched in 2011, (laughs) there's, there's such industry momentum though around Premiere Pro that, um, this, this felt like one of these important things where again, similar to trying to tell editors to throw out their love for the waveforms. I couldn't say, Oh no, you just shouldn't use it. But the Final <laughs> Cut tools, despite the initial rollout, yeah, they've come a long way. Um, there might there might still be things missing um, that legacy post production facilities still miss, and why they're still sort of stuck on Avid and um, all the Media Composer workflows. But it's similar with Premiere Pro, is that there's just this momentum to yeah. that. That's what editors sort of expect to collaborate with yeah i mean when final cut 7 was axed in in terms of final cut x we could be final cut point one um people were like well let's go with premiere it's basically what final cut 8 would have been you know and um but i think in both cases and probably with all apps though i don't play with avid too much these days and the whole like you were saying the whole universe of plugins and third-party developers i mean intelligent assistance has created all these cool apps like something like finder cat where you can drag out an event of items and then it'll just put mac os keywords and tag all your clips or um i was using another app for um the podcast um 
they made one called Creator's Best Friend, where basically if you had chapter markers in Final Cut and you could export basically uh, markers for YouTube. So you would export a YouTube clip and then all your little markers in the timeline would just be, you know, already, you know, the timeline's already set and you just cut and paste that, copy and paste that into YouTube and it goes, boom, you just have instant, like, you know, go to points in YouTube. And so they called it like creator's best friend. So there's all these little cool apps and cool ways to extend, uh, you know, functionality that may or may not be there or the way that somebody wants to work. Right. So there's different ways of wanting to approach a tool or do your editing and yeah, yeah, absolutely. But that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of an overview of like the whole workflow is like being very consistent about shrinking things down quarter res and making sure that the working timelines are proportionally shrunk down. Um, and in theory, um, we, we've started to do this too for when we've had crazy uh, 8K capture of footage. We could also, I mean, it scales uh as big as you want so i mean for 8k you could shrink down to 16th res so you could do the math as um you know one order in two directions and not just one half so we could have like the 16th res workflow as well and i guess if black magic has the uh 12k capture now <laughs> that they're trying to push on that one camera you it could it could just keep going um shrink it all the way down so that still editors the offline editors out on the internet are still only facing 36 megabits per second and uh it's not any more taxing on their distributed systems yeah i mean there's no greater horror than when i first encountered the red camera i mean it's a, a wonderful camera but i mean when people were like yeah it's tapeless workflow just gonna be all digital files and i'm like oh are our backups good enough for that you know and now it's like oh you've got even a bigger camera now it's like shooting 6k than 8k or whatever it's like you know it's like i mean you know and then people tell you they want to work in like native resolution you know whatever it is you know and I'm like, mm, how about a proxy workflow <laughs> can i interest you in a proxy workflow uh, yeah, it's one of the things that I was very glad that we we sort of had the muscle on uh, that we had been doing native proxies, uh, but on our own local storage. And that was good enough until it wasn't. And we knew we wanted to start streaming lower data rates through the through Lucid. And so we're able to sort of save money on storage and throughout. And, and yeah, really, it's just less taxing on the CPU and GPU for the whole system so that people can sort of put their head down and just get to the creative work. I mean, a lot of our role as the, as the system engineers is to find a workflow that works for them to do their work. But some of it is um, the, the psychologist hat is to comfort and to convince the editors that working in a proxy format doesn't lose what they're looking for in their red file or their, you know, whatever their original raw for, for format was that they can edit and not, they're not, you know, like I remember early days of Avid, people on set were working in like SD and we're like back in the VFX house working in HD. And then they're like, oh, wow, it looks good on your systems. I'm like, what are you guys editing in on shitty Avids? You know, like, um, but you know, you want to get away, you want to help the editors realize that they can see the files and they're not losing all the information to make their editing decisions whatever it is you know absolutely and then and then being able to reliably conform back to get the most amount of data for the color grade but you don't want to have to be pushing all those pixels around and all that data around 
weighing the edit down uh, if, if it's about speed. So it's like different kinds of collaborators are after different things. The colorist doesn't necessarily need to be able to uh, just be scrubbing through. They're sort of going shot by shot and making sure that the color matches, but real-time playback is less important. Um, although we sort of like ship, or it, it's it's not that it's less important, it's this it's only worth it once we've already figured out the exact shots that are making it into the final piece. You you don't want to push all that around when you're funneling eight hours of footage down into three minutes. <laughs> it's it's just a waste. Um, so Lucid and proxy workflow is the, the answer to a lot of people's problems for working remotely, working collaboratively. Are, are you shoving all your originals online too in some buckets, you know, or uh, are the originals living somewhere on-prem? So we're sort of going through different, different, uh, th this is still up in the air. Um, we've uh, sometimes conformed back to the original so that an XML file might be pointing back to the originals. But uh, lately, for a while, we've also just been uh, relinking to that inside Premiere and then going back to either the log footage, if it's log video, or just choosing to debayer to a log format if it's raw, like our 3Ds, and then baking that out in a pretty flexible way to send off to the colorist. So we... Um, there's a lot of data you can get, but you don't necessarily need all of it if there weren't huge technical problems and it was exposed relatively well. And so in your journey to solve a lot of these problems you've been going to, I know Lucid's got a slack these days. I mean, have you been able to reach out to people to, to figure out these pipeline problems or these, you know, I need to do this in Premiere or I need to do this? Like how, you know, how, how has been the, the community uh, have they been able to raise raise you like the the community raises their child has has Seth grown up with the help of others here? Yeah, I think um I think it's like it has been very supportive. All this knowledge is sort of distributed. So people just know about their little corner. Like the suggestion for generating the peak files just uh, for the particular clips. I had no idea about that function in Premiere, and I didn't realize. You could just choose it, choose individual files to do. I didn't know that functionality existed because by default, it's kind of hidden and you wouldn't know that that, uh, that Premiere has that built-in functionality. But the LucidLink community, um, the, the community Slack that they have, full of people who have this. And this is kind of like the, the very nerdy, esoteric knowledge trapped up in those bigger facilities when it makes sense that those people, they're the ones who would have the knowledge, but that just uh, other less technical collaborators would have no real need of knowing. Like, I, I think a lot of creative video editors have no need to know the internals of how ZFS works or TrueNAS, but um, at a certain point, you get these like studio sysadmins who do. And that's another great Slack, the studio system yeah. means, you know, the VFX and creative media community. Uh, there used to be a mailing list in a bulletin board and now a Slack where a yeah. lot of people uh, share knowledge and it's, it's a great uh, collaboration. Absolutely. Yeah. Tons of VFX work in there too. 
Yeah, no, I think it started off with VFX communities and, uh, um, and because this is the Mac DevOps podcast, um, we have to, I have to ask you a question. How's your adventures with monkey? Are you still having fun with monkey or, uh, um, how's your, uh, it, uh, it chops, you know, what's, what's going on? What, what are you, what are you working on? <laughs> yeah. Monkey's good. Um, I, I think we're moving to a different, uh, obviously we, <laughs> we are uh fleet Smith refugees. And uh, so, uh, we're going to move over to a different MDM. Um, that's great. Has a bunch of other auto management of a lot of the major, major apps that aren't provided in the mac app store um but monkey will still fill that gap for those custom packages because monkey is so so good at keeping track of versioning for all the other stuff so for the stuff that the mdm provider can't uh, or just or doesn't manage more esoteric stuff um for us like black magics atem switcher software or like the black magic camera packages and stuff stuff that normal mac admins uh wouldn't like or i should say not enough mac admins need that stuff and so monkey fills the gap because it can it can beautifully keep track of all that versioning um when it's you you just push the new package into the repository and it just magically updates on everyone's machine in the right way are you using a monkey with auto package to feed your monkey repo? And so I still have not messed around with auto package. I'm still scared of it. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I mean, I just kind of grab those packages and throw them in. Um, and that's been working, but, um, yeah, auto package seems like a good investment. I just have not had the time mm. to do. I feel like I want to mm. run my own recipes too. I've been using auto package for a while, but I really don't know how to use it. I'm not like a genius of, of course, everyone will tell you that. Um, but, uh, I found a few ways to break it. I've been using auto packager, which is like a little GUI app for auto package, uh, though auto package runs beautifully on the command line. And I was pretty happy for five minutes when I figured out how to get auto package to feed monkey that's in simple MDM. So you can literally run auto package in the command line, grab a recipe and just go, I want the latest version of PostLab or LucidLink and just send it to simple MDM because that's sort of like a, a sheltered version of monkey, you know, and they've been gradually exposing more of the, of the, of the package infos and different things you could do in monkey. Cause you can still do a lot of things with the normal monkey uh, setup. Um, but yeah, just auto package is nice. And I think, you know, um, Elliot, I think it's Elliot, uh, made the uh, recipe robot app. And so basically you can use that to make a recipe for an app that, so, you know, occasionally I've made recipes for certain VFX or media entertainment apps that just weren't in the normal auto package repos because not everybody was using, you know, say PostLab or Hedge or something. A lot of people are, but not like 10,000 Mac admins sometimes, you know. So sometimes in your own corner, you can just make a recipe and then that recipe allows you to go, I want this run every day, see if this new version, if there's a version, just jump it into my repo. and. I mean, yeah, I do wonder about the very specific, uh, monkey's good about, uh, handling all sorts of different edge cases. Like if you need an installs array as a last resort to actually ch tell if a particular package is installed on a system, or if you have different, I can't, I can't believe we're still dealing with this, different Apple Silicon architecture versus Intel <laughs> architectures uh, that you can have a package that's named the exact same thing in the manifest 
and then it will distribute out um it it, it will only pull the correct one for the repo because it's checking on the system. So I wonder, I mean, I, I assume that is also taken care of an auto package. You just kind of add in both, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, in your recipe, you can tell it what to do, you know, and it's up to the package, the package creators, the app developers to, to give you something sometimes, you know, like one password, I don't know if it's universal yet. Right. So if you wanted one password eight, You'd only get like an Intel or an M1. You wouldn't get a universal. You couldn't. You couldn't magically. So then that's when you'd have to download both and then go monkey. You figure it out, you know. And monkey is the genius in the room because that's a cool project uh, run by a a bunch of benevolent saints from the Brotherhood of Monkeys, you know. But uh, um, yeah, I mean that, that community really helps uh, and answers the same questions over and over. And uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> with. Uh, with endless patience <laughs> endless patience sometimes yeah yeah no uh well thank you seth for uh, sharing your workflows around media and entertain entertainment and the cloud the cloud our pandemic's best friend um and how to figure out how to collaboratively work across great distances uh in, in as a team and uh Thanks to uh, your hard work and sharing it and to the community for answering your questions and for everybody coming together and helping us uh, get our jobs done so we can get paid. <laughs> yeah, love constantly tweaking. Love constantly tweaking it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Awesome. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see you in Vancouver maybe one day. I have to organize my own post-production, you know, sort of media production world or something. We can jazz about uh you know everything media entertainment in the cloud but until then we will see you again on the podcast one of these days or <laughs> sometime soon on slack uh, thank you so much thanks thank you to our awesome mac devops sponsors for the 2022 mac devops conference we would like to thank kanji our platinum sponsor thank you kanji visit them at kanji.io our gold sponsor is Simple MDM. Thank you, Simple MDM. Visit them at simplemdm.com. Our silver sponsor is Adigy. Thank you, Adigy. Visit them at adigy.com. And thank you to our live stream sponsor, Mac Stadium. Visit them at macstadium.com. Our graphics recording sponsor is Fleet DM. Please visit them at fleetdm.com. Please take a moment to visit all our sponsors. We could not hold Mac DevOps YVR without the support of our sponsors. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I like feel it? like I um yeah, I just like uh yeah, wanted to like share it because it was like so exciting after having like bashed my head against the wall for <laughs> yeah. months and months. You've been working on the workflow for a long time now, yeah. I yeah. mean I feel like I've been slowly tweaking ours, you know, just uh it was definitely the big questions at the beginning are like, how are we going to generate the proxies? How are we going to reconnect them? Are they really going to reconnect? You know, like, <laughs> am I going to tell the editors to do something and it's not going to work? <laughs> yeah. The, the, uh, the other like thing that's uh, sort of supports this so much is like all the documentation um, that like you want to have those like very digestible guides, like, Hey, you're an editor set your sequence size to this. This is what this means. Like, this is why we're doing it. And uh, building out that documentation so that anyone can sort of like go just answer their own questions and like very digestible, almost like just, yeah, like our little internal wiki so that people people can uh, 
for the questions that inevitably arise, you could just be like, bam, here's the answer. Like yeah, you would on a Wikipedia page. Documentation is definitely important. I remember the first sort of PDF we did was sort of step-by-step, step, you know, here's a screenshot of how do you create your project? How do you do this? And then I had one editor is like, I need actual one, two, three. And I'm like, oh, okay. We can make it a little bit better. Okay. Step one, make sure you open this. Step two, make sure this is, you know, and then they gave a recipe that can be followed. And then you follow that a couple of times and then you know it. Right. But um, it really tests your knowledge of it. Okay. Okay. What is the first step? Let's make sure. Let's go through this. You know, like we don't want to forget. And so even just now, like we we're going through some stuff and I was had this really awesome. I just thought it was so exciting talking with some people on Twitter and talking with, um, uh, I think it's Norbert from NeoFinder and uh, talking about how to find stuff. And, and uh, we were talking, I sent him an X, F, FCP XML and he was looking at the the keyword metadata and it's going to add that to NeoFinder. But, you know, we were also talking amongst the editors and I was like, you know, I want to help you guys find stuff, you know, so how do we do that? And then we're talking about what is the best way to archive a project afterwards and kind of in development. And we finally realized, I think we're going to add an extra step where after we, finish the project and everything is all done. We export XML, you know, FCP XML, just as an extra step, like, cause for us, you know, we've been using PostLab and so it's kind of stuck in PostLab. So we've been exporting the project out of PostLab. Uh, but then we're like, okay, we'll just export XML as well because we've been bringing back old projects. Like I had set up a little workflow to bring like old Final Cut 7 as well as even a older, like not older, but older Final Cut 10. And then you have to bring those back and so, you know, if you don't have the XML, then you have to open them in a version that can work and then you have to get the XML and then you feed it to an app that can convert. So, so I was like, okay, let's get to update our documents and documentation and go, okay, make sure we add that step going to add, you know? And so, you know, it's like making sure that the archiving workflow that's been important for me too, is like, how do they finish a project? Not just how do they start a project? And, um, Absolutely. I mean, it's like any project, it could be a, like a video project or even like a coding project when you uh have to like open it back up the metaphor i always like is it's like putting on it's like jumping into a lake with your clothes on like a spur of the moment and then you realize that you actually have to like put that wet clothes wet, put those wet clothes back on and it's terrible and you didn't plan on ever getting back into them and you have to now <laughs> it's just yeah just a mess uh, I mean, in terms of archiving, have you uh, have you paid attention to? Um, I mean, Netflix is really driving a lot of this, but like the IMF deliverables, you know about IMFs? Yeah, I, I haven't really done anything. It's like, uh, but it's some kind of new standard, right? Like, um... yeah, I I think it harkens back to um, Cine tools. Um, and actually even the old QuickTime where you could do insert edits without having to transcode an entire media clip over again. Um, and so it's like it represents, it, it kind of has its origins in the uh, DCP format. So like mm -hmm. what you actually send to digital cinema servers. But with this added functionality of being able to essentially do insert edits. Um, and have like kind of rudimentary editing where like if you needed to swap a shot, you could just add a file in and it just glues it together in the right way when you call it up. It's it's really, really interesting. I mean, <sighs> Netflix drove it. Uh, they've got a blog post on the Netflix tech blog uh, that talks about uh, how it's a cure for versionitis. So you can mm -hmm. imagine like if they have some uh, some 
mezzanine format, like deliverable, but they need to have like 16 different title cards to reflect like 16 different languages. You want most of the footage to be the same and then just like swap like the title card or like the lower third and you don't have to re-render most of the program. You just kind of add in those extra little bits and it kind of glues it all together. Like NLE specific, like you have to... Um, it's it's open source. Um, Resolve supports it. I think there's a bunch of other like kind of high end um, like rendering programs, like maybe Clipster or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I know I think Baselight and Resolve do it. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure about others. Definitely come up a lot where stuff gets like you know re re restored and like you know language like a whole new language dubbed or like new like new titles like or somebody sees something and wants to reuse that in another market you know or they, yeah you know that i've definitely seen that a lot with some of the footage uh depending on the projects um but yeah it's been it's been like uh, on, on my side a, a little bit related to this is like how do we store stuff so that people can find stuff not just an asset management for like b-roll or clips which is still like yeah, we want a ma'am. We don't want a ma'am, but we want a ma'am, you know. But um, it's just more like like we came to some compromise a few years ago where it's like, okay, we'd have like a master output and some compressions, and even if we archive the entire product, the master outputs would be there, so they could quickly either show like a you know a suit or somebody important, or they could quickly look at a project from beginning to end, you know, without having yeah. to store it from anywhere. Uh, definitely because you know even before LTO, but you know with LTO, it still kind of takes a while to find a product, restore it. And so then now with the proxy workflow, I've been thinking, especially when, since we've been using proxy workflows pretty good with PostLab, was just keep a proxy version always around. You know, you can make a super tiny one and keep those around as super lightweight. You could even make a quick edit. No one will f- freaking know, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, um, yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, but it's yeah. like, how do you, how do you, you know, without having actual great mem, you know, media asset management system, how do you, how do you, how do people find old projects, make quick changes or, you know, you know, Sometimes they're looking for footage that was in a project, but then they, they don't have a media asset management. They don't know where that footage is and they can't find it. So like I've been using Foxtrot and NeoFinder just to like bulk search everything because I've been using like uh, rack mounted uh, Synologies as a near line archive. So LTO, yeah. rack mounted near lines. And then, you know, they got the XM uh, usually or a jellyfish or like I got some people using Evos and yeah, I mean, the main storage should be for editing, but that will fill up if you just leave everything sit on it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, we, we the the Yada database that we have is like very deep. And so a lot of it's just like these requests are like, hey, wouldn't some footage from like three years ago go really well? Wasn't what was the name of that one project? It's like, OK, let's go pull up and pull open the tapes, like go find them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for some footage I've been using, like Archiware has got like a little man you can use, but then that those clips, you're making tiny proxies, you know, but that can add up uh, in size too. And so the other way is just like to try and tag it or find it in NeoFinder or Foxtrot. I've been playing with both just because they can go, oh, search the entire XNs, all the volumes, search all the Synologies, search everything. And then I'll even export all the archives as a text file from Archiware. And it can search the text file that has a list of everything archived, you know. Um, so that seems like a very brute force way of finding stuff. So keeping, you know, low weight proxy footage folder projects, you know, that 
I mean, but yeah, we also have FileMaker to keep track of all the projects. And that was one of the big things I did for this one big team is that they would shoot stuff. It was green lit, but they didn't have a project number yet. And so then they only gave a project number or put it in an archive database going, this project was archived. It's on this DVD or Blu-ray or on a drive or a tape. And so I said, okay, no, you got to start from the beginning. The database starts when the project is green lit, then it has a product number. Product number comes, stays with when they capture the footage and then it goes in the project and then it's it's always has the same numbers and name and, and that, that helps find stuff, but still, yeah, they need, <laughs> it's a, it's yeah, not, not everyone's prepared to spend like hundreds of thousands of dollars on the, the MAMs. No. And so agreeing to name things properly is a, is a definitely much more affordable uh, alternative. And some of the MAM systems, you know, I won't name names, but they're not always improving the searching and finding of things, um, you know, and maybe they'll add an editing tool, but I'm like the editors, you want to use whatever editing tool they like, whether it's Premiere or Final Cut, they don't want to edit in the MAM. They want to just find the footage they need, you know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, constantly evolving, constantly searching and constantly looking at cool tools and seeing what people are doing. And, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. Cool. Time for well, this was fun. Yeah. Thanks Seth. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll do it again. And we tweak all this again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. We're going to say we threw all that out. Yeah. Time to do it again. <laughs> Yeah, I'll check in with you in a couple months and see how you survive. And <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, take care. Please like and share this podcast on your favorite podcast service. Do, 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 do. How do you stop these bots? Stop the bots. Stop the bots.